Welcome to Profiles in Eccentricity, a show about weirdos, with your hosts, John Fahey, Aaron Peter, and Matt Brutzone. Hello folks, welcome to Profiles in Eccentricity, it's a show about weirdos, doggone it. My name, as ever, handsome young John Boy, John Fahey. Joining me eternally, the embodiment of human attraction, Mr. Aaron Joseph Peter. How are That's you? That's me. It's it is good to be an archetype of perfection. <laughs> yes, yeah, something to aspire to. Yes, a platonic mm-hmm. ideal, if you will. Yes, but you it, are beyond male sexuality. Yeah, and you have become strictly a sexuality. Yes, it's a homosexual, a heterosexual, pan, 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 pansexual. Pansexual, of course, is, is <laughs> somebody who becomes aroused when around a flat. Where? <laughs> <laughs> right, of course, of course. Uh, we are here uh, Wait, with the. the uh, you, you're gonna do it, please. That I'm. I'm gonna nut. Why? Because to my right, to my two o'clock, yes, is somebody that makes me go six to midnight. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. Matt Russo. Hi, I'm here. I'm still here. How you doing? I'm doing great, guys. It's great to be here. The Lord of Time Travel, six to midnight, baby. <laughs> I love it. Ooh. Matt, you're a gorgeous fella. How you doing? I'm doing great, guys. Uh, here we are, episode 51. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very satisfied uh, getting some Nixon in the bag last episode. Episode 50 mm-hmm. on yes. Profiles and Eccentricity. Yes. Uh, ready to delve into the conclusion. Um, I kind of... Um, going to be a lot looser uh, because to me it was very important to tell uh, the early story of Nixon because I don't feel like it's it's very well known. What we know of Nixon is, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, the, the president era and, you know, and and, you know, all of his uh, various uh, corruption things. Various and stuff like corruptions, that. yes. And I, I, I don't really want to get into that uh, too much because it's been exhaustively done. So I'm going to be far looser and really talk more about the impact and the nuances of his uh, odd behavior and and try to basically suss out like where it comes from and everything. Um, Let's I, unpack his eccentricities. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, like uh, so, uh, there's a lot more darkness in this episode. Believe it or not, <laughs> uh, you know we, we get uh, a lot more of um, what we actually know to be true about Nixon, especially from the tapes and stuff like that. You find you know this the, the Nixon tapes are these completely. Uncensored, you know, I mean, they were redacted when it was like, you know, time to talk about crimes. But a lot of the things that survived on the tapes are are things anybody wouldn't want anybody hearing them say, you know, there's racist, horrible shit. Um, But like I was saying to Matt earlier uh, today, like even when he unpacks that kind of shit, like there's just this sheer ignorance about it. You know, like Mm -hmm. Nixon really comes from this old, you know, like. Old-timey, you know, pick yourself up from the bootstraps. He was, you know, raised very poor, like we talked about in episode one. And he really believes, you know, in this kind of like a Western, you know, English-descended way of, of, you know, white men ruling things, you know. Mm. He didn't like seeing women in, in, in any kind of job role at all, you know. Uh, he said something one time, uh, like, he's like, I don't want to wake up next to a female pipe fitter. 
<laughs> she's like, what the fuck do you care? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what What do you care if she's fitting pipes, you know? Yeah, I mean, hell, I'd, I'd, I'd love to wake, next, wake up next to a chick who knew her way around pipes. Wait, you don't want to not fit the pipe, right? No, you got to fit the pipe. It's got to fit. <laughs> it's got to If it doesn't fit, <laughs> you must acquit. Yeah. You must, <laughs> you must <laughs> acquit this relationship. <laughs> 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 so like that that like uh, you know uh, that type of racism comes out in in Nixon's tapes uh, where he he talks about uh, the uh, he's, he talks, one, one thing he says and and keep in mind you know his his wife Pat was of Irish descent um, but he says at one point that the Irish can't drink and that they become too mean huh and stuff like that and I was like oh that doesn't really fit the stereotype of the jolly drunk Irish you know and then he just says about the Italians uh, which you briefly just beautifully impersonated uh that uh <laughs> he just says that they're just not right in the head <laughs> that's all he says about it like there's these just like you know like when you're talking to like a dumb relative and, yeah. and they go off one racist thing about one guy they knew that was polish or whatever yeah, yeah. and then they you know make that about all of it like he he talks about shit like that with uh he's caught on tape uh i think talking to rumsfeld actually um where he's saying, um, yeah, you know, one thing about the the blacks is that uh, they're, they're never spies. You know, you never see them spying. He's like, whereas the Jews, like, it's like it's second nature to them. They're born spies. You know? like, he's just going off about this shit. Well, without ever considering that uh, maybe uh, in Europe, a black guy uh, in England with an American accent might, you know, be uh, obvious. Oh, right. Yeah. Or, or that... maybe blacks are the best spies because right. you never see them being oh. spies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah or, you know, the, the, the things that you've done to them have made them keep their heads down a little bit, maybe. Right. You know? Or, or <laughs> like... why, why would they spy for America? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, like, there's no, like, winning team for them to spy for, <laughs> yeah. really. It's just yeah, of... every war that African Americans ever served in in the U.S., they came back and got treated like shit yeah, every right. time. Yeah. From Buffalo soldiers all the way to World War II up at this point. It was just like, oh, yeah, yeah I, I fought for my country, came back, and I couldn't. To Vietnam, to <laughs> yeah. last week in Alabama, the yeah. guy who got shot. Uh, yeah. So this week, of course, uh, uh, we lost uh, George H.W. Bush, um, a man whose career was actually released solely uh, based on Nixon. Uh, or George H.W. Bush w lost a run for the Senate, mm -hmm. and uh, Nixon saw a promise in him and made him the ambassador to the UN. And then later on during the Watergate times, uh, George H.W. Bush was uh, was the head of the RNC, Republican National Committee. And then he went on to be head of the CIA. Mm -hmm. Right. So I mean, the, but this is really a career that, like, you know, Nixon. Even though he saw this guy that was, you know, Ivy League, blah blah blah, not of his thing, he just saw a drive. Mm -hmm. and a lot of uh, ambition, and he, he just believed in the guy, you know, and Nixon would surround himself with all these other kind of, like, Ivy League, uh, you know, aristocratic-type people that, you know, weren't really his thing, you know, but he still believed in this, this like, kind of thing of uh, the old white guy way of doing things is still the best way. Like, in the, like I was saying to Matt earlier, like, his poverty still didn't really open him up to, you know, thinking, like, maybe these these old white guys don't really have it right, you know? It seemed like he was kind of, like, uh, doing that thing where, uh, you know, um, he was, like, shutting the doors behind him. He was like, yeah. now, I've, now, <laughs> I've now I've joined the elite, and now I just support them. And there's them. no more room. Yeah. So, yeah. I, I did it. Why can't they? 
Yes, yes. You know. Um, Do you think George H. W. Bush ever saw the irony in being uh, fighting World War II against the weapons that his grandfather sold to the Germans? <laughs> I, I, I bet he did. I bet when he was on that raft, he probably thought about it a lot. Yeah, you know, George. So George H. W. Bush was shot down. Yeah, and uh, the rest of his mates were eaten. What? Did you know that? No. They got eaten. Huh. By I think other people. Wow. That's a, that's a hell of a... Can we look that up on Reddit or so? Can we... <laughs> no. Yeah, I'm going to start that rumor. We're going to say it's fact. Yeah, I think everyone else got eaten. Okay. <laughs> well, he probably yeah. pushed them out of the yeah, rat. fuck them. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I went to Yale. <laughs> we did this all the time. <laughs> Do you think Nixon... Would have been pissed if he knew that uh, George H. W. Bush Bush killed his old buddy JFK. <laughs> um, I I don't know. Uh, he he would uh, largely blame it on uh, LBJ. Matt, can we play that clip? Sure. This is Nixon, the historian, after uh, oh, his days in it. office. Story one time to George Christian shortly thereafterwards. George Christian was Johnson's press secretary, perhaps remember him, and became press secretary for Governor Conway, who was our head of Democrats for Nixon. We were meeting in the Orwell office, and uh, I uh, saw the morning news report, and I just happened casually to mention to George, I said, well, I bet you that, uh, uh, that President Johnson is uh, going to be real pleased uh, when he finds that now they're calling me the number one bomber. George Christian said, oh, don't be too sure. He said, you know, LBJ, he never likes to be number two. So Nixon in this clip is like grinning ear to ear when he delivers the line, LBJ never likes to be number two, because he knows he's obviously saying that LBJ orchestrated the assassination of JFK to become president. Uh, And he's relishing it on camera. And he's saying it intentionally on camera, like... He totally knows what he's doing. Yeah. It's in- completely insane that he would do that, but this is what a psycho this guy is. Like uh, joking about a president's assassination. His friend. <laughs> yeah. You know, his friend, as we talked about in the last episode, you know, uh uh, you know, him and JFK were good friends and um after the assassination of uh JFK, he he wrote that very heartfelt letter to uh, to Jackie and uh and then he had uh, these words, um, Matt's going to play here in a minute, uh, immediately following the assassination. Uh, he was just caught on the street. Mr. Nixon, do you have uh, a statement that you'd care to make on your arrival now? I made a statement yesterday for the television and uh, newspapers, uh, which I will not repeat now. <laughs> Good call. So I will only say that <laughs> I came to Washington for the first time in 1947 as a first-term congressman along with President Kennedy. And through the years, I was privileged to know him not only as a congressman and as a senator and later as president, but while I and he were political opponents, We were personal friends, and I come here today with my wife to join with thousands of others and through the medium of television and newspapers and radio, millions throughout the world, 
to pay tribute to a gallant warrior. So, basically, you know, he, he handles it pretty well in the wake of JFK. After JFK won the election, you know, there was the, the widespread belief, and probably truth, that the, the vote was thrown in Texas and Illinois uh, by LBJ's people in Texas and, you know, the, uh, the Chicago Democratic machine in Illinois. Um, and it was, you know, it was 0.2% he lost by, and, you know, he really could have contested it, but he really did believe it would you know, throw the country's standing into doubt at a time of the Cold War, and it would be bad for the country. So there's this thing with Nixon where he really does do what he thinks is right for the country at times like those, you know. And he uh, he goes back to uh, California. He writes this book called Six Crises, talking about, you know, his public political life and uh, the the various big kind of uh, decision points, as George W. Bush would say. I love that George W. Bush named his book Decision Points. <laughs> like there wasn't uh, some other phrase. For these it. were my decision points. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> you know what I mean? As president, I was I was forced to face several decision points. N- no kidding. You fucking jerk. His dad's dead. I shouldn't make fun of him. No, you can't. Fuck him. <laughs> the war criminal. Yeah, the dad's a war criminal. They were both. And so war- was his. Son. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so in six the crises- audacity of hope, decision point. <laughs> <laughs> in six crises, he talked about the uh, the Alger Hiss spy case that he you know he was uh, you know pivotally involved with uh, Eisenhower's heart attack and maintaining uh, you know the administration as vice president, uh, the funding scandal that led to the Checker speech where he talked about you know how poor he was and a good Republican cloth coat for his wife and all that shit. We had a couple of dinners. <laughs> Look at this dog. So now he's, you know, he's, he's, now he's lost to JFK. And so he's encouraged to run against Pat Brown here in California for the governorship. Uh, is that Jerry Brown's dad? I feel like that probably is. Uh, I, yeah, I believe it is. Yes. That was um, and it's basically just clouded by suspicion that it's sort of like Hillary running for the Senate of New York, that it's just a stepping stone to a more, you know, prominent political thing. And it seems like it really was. Um, the whole, uh, like, uh, Republican establishment is behind him. They want him to stay, you know, in, in the lead of, of national politics. So they're behind him and, uh, he loses by like five points. You know, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's viewed as like the end of his career. Um, Howard K. Smith on ABC does a program on his political obituary, right? On Richard Nixon's political obituary. Wow. And they trot out Alger Hiss. And they interview him, and he's talking about what a scumbag Nixon is. And this, again, results in the public totally sympathizing with Nixon. Like, there's this thing where Nixon keeps getting beaten down, and the public feels sorry for him. And then he's able to start fighting back. Like, he's always kind of an... Rocky. He's an opposition guy. He's like the underdog, and he's really safe in that role. Uh, Again and again. Uh throughout his entire career. Um, and then it seems, you know, uh, like that he's he's fairly finished. He goes on, on a little trip to Europe with his family in 1963. That's when JFK called him and was like, hey, I heard you were here. I'm doing the Ichbin Ein Berliner speech. I thought I'd say hello. And uh, 
he said during the 62 election, which he lost, that he wouldn't run in 64. And so he's supporting Goldwater, uh, and even though he doesn't think he's a good candidate or going to win, and Goldwater gets completely slaughtered by uh, LBJ, of course. Uh, I'm sorry to jump in here, but uh, the, the famous Nixon line, you won't have me to kick around anymore, is yes. after he loses California. Yes, and I always thought that um, when he said, uh, you know, you're not going to have... N- Nixon to kick it around anymore because this is my last press conference. I always thought that that was a post-Watergate thing because it was such a famous line. Right. But it's actually, you know, long before he was president. <laughs> yeah, long before he was kicked around more. Yeah, a lot more. Um, <laughs> so he supports Goldwater, but he's not really blamed for the losses that the Republicans get. And he kind of comes out of it reputation unscathed. And then that helps when LBJ is in power and the midterms are there again in 66 and he helps the Republicans campaign and get a lot more seats, right? They kind of gain a lot more ground. So he's like keeping his reputation up. And then in 67, he tells the family that he wants to run again. And Pat, the wife, you know. The pipe fitter. Right. The one that was (laughs) formerly dicked down. Uh... (laughs) She was kind of embarrassed by that checker speech where, like, it was all about how poor they were. Like, she didn't like the public life so much, but she supports them. And uh, Nixon thinks that Democrats are going to be torn about Vietnam, right? And, of course, they are, right? And they look at Nixon um, as basically being the guy that is steady. You know, uh, he later called it the silent majority and saying that, like, you know, he was being, like, you know, just the pragmatic, calm one at a time of, like, massive national upheaval. This is post-MLK, RFK assassination, stuff like that. And a lot of, you know, people are just totally blindsided by hippie culture and revolutionary character. Yeah, this is, what, 68 now? 68, yeah, yeah This yeah. is the most tumultuous year yeah. in American history. Right. It's Mod like, Squad's on TV, oh. Smothers Brothers. Right. And so, and was sixty six was I think one it might have been the biggest quote unquote wave since two thousand eighteen yeah. of republic this time is Republicans sweeping into power right yeah and so there was a huge uh, I mean silent but they voted a majority behind them too yeah it's the thing that people always forget about in this country is just how vast it is and how the middle is so overwhelmingly white yeah. and pretty scared. <laughs> You know, of basically what they see happening on the coast. So they do want like a steady hand. So you, it always kind of they think they see right what they see is a steady hand, of course. But like it is something that like you like you need to like always be aware of like these people like they don't go away. There's still just this massive amount of kind of, you know, not super informed white people in the center of the country that have so much voting power. And Nixon was speaking directly to them. And at the same time, he was also taking up the southern strategy, which was being like. All the yeah. Democrats are now pro-civil rights, yeah. so all the old Dixiecrats that were racist are to be picked up, Yeah. right? And also, George Wallace was in that election. Do you know how many fucking yes. electoral votes that he got? Like 60. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Nixon got 300. A total abject segregationist <laughs> got 60 electoral votes. Jesus. Which means Nixon wasn't far enough right. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, he he did run on kind of a centrist thing, and he had passed civil rights legislation before, you know, like under uh, Eisenhower and stuff like that. Um, mainly at Nixon's, you know, bequest being like, you need to do this. And uh, so he was, uh, you know, he went to work after he won uh, getting uh, his, his, his VP Spiro Agnew uh, to uh, 
which he picked as a Southern guy to help pick up Southern votes. Mm-hmm. And then he was like, listen, we're integrating these schools now. you got to take care of it. And Spiro Agnew was like, I don't give a fuck about this. Like, I'm a fucking asshole myself. Yeah. And uh, Have you read my name? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a speech I saw Spiro Agnew where he says, "Who, if, if you're in surgery, who would you want to, to operate on you? Someone who uh, uh, was a graduated college or someone who got in because of a quota. And it's like, well, if they graduate, it doesn't fucking matter. But he's just, he's playing that old whistle. Yeah. His whole, everything he did for Nixon was whistle. Yeah, as long he, as they're not a pipe fitter. Right. Is right. there a school for that? And he goes, you know, he does the whole attack dog thing that Nixon did under Eisenhower, where he's uh, talking about, you know, the the hippies and the yippies, lions, tigers, yeah. panthers, weatherman one, weatherman two, SDS, PLP, the... <laughs> The uh, fucking uh, something action movement, and he goes, I'd rather swap the whole damn zoo for a single platoon of the kind of young Americans I saw in Vietnam. And the fucking conservative, like, CPAC crowd goes apeshit. Completely disregarding that... Those, a lot of those Americans he saw in Vietnam are are against him and part of those groups. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So Nixon is also running on, you know, a, a Let's Close Vietnam platform, you know, and uh, then, like, you know, he inherits this thing that LBJ has, which is, like, I don't want to be the first American president to lose a war. Yeah. You know? And then Cambodia gets overthrown, right, by the Khmer Rouge. And so now the North Vietnamese have this ally there. So then he starts doing invasions into there covertly. And suddenly, you know, he's like, I, now I have to announce I'm invading Cambodia. So now he's the guy that ran on winding it down to now expanding it, right? That results in in uh, in protests all over the country, which leads to the Kent State shooting where yeah. four fucking kids are shot at college in Ohio. Yeah. By the National Guard. Uh, yeah. Fucking insane. Yeah. You know, and... Uh, if you want to, if you want to learn a little bit more, watch the opening credits to The Watchmen. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's a great documentary of the <laughs> yeah. U.S. history. Yeah, and at the time, the administration issued some really cold thing, being like a uh, civil disobedience leads to tragedy sometimes, and then the Jesus. protests really yeah. ramped up all yeah. over the country. They didn't do themselves any favors. The government, the powers no, that be. No, I mean having Kissinger in your uh, part of your administration. Speaking of war criminals, right? Yeah. Uh, so I mean, th- like. Nixon, you know, he does a lot, uh, like, as president, he does, I'm not, I'm, like, again, I'm not going to get too much into all the history of this stuff uh, with his entire presidency and, and uh, everything, but the notable things are uh, the establishment of the EPA, right, and uh, the Endangered Species Act, yep. which a lot of people thought was for political expediency and not, like, anything he really gave a fuck about, but he still did. And, um, you know, uh, even when he was, like, you know, tackling inflation and stuff like that, which was a result of the war in Vietnam, he was still willing to use, like, bureaucracy in a way that later Republicans like Reagan and shit like that wouldn't have been about. Like, he was still a, a very government man, you know? Right. He was still very center on that point. Uh, well, because but, then later, as as Reagan got into power, it was government is is the problem. Yeah, it's scary. Watch out, says the man. How do I know? I'm I, in it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've been in for the last 20, 30 years. Yeah. Yeah, which is the same thing Trump did about corruption in politics. He's like, how do I know? I'm the one that pays them. Yeah. And I will continue. And it's like, so why yeah. should we elect you? You're the you're part of the problem. But people were like, what yeah. What if we just elect better people? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> maybe government isn't the problem. But, you know, like I said in the previous episode, Nixon had gone to Indochina and he had looked at the Chinese uh, and, and, Chinese. and stuff. <laughs> yeah, he looked at Chinese. And he had seen basically that this was the future of of global manufacturing was in these countries is like you can't ignore just a billion of the world's people yeah so he, he starts these covert uh, like 
negotiations yeah. with opening up dialogue with the Chinese. And they're doing it covertly, too. And then when that comes out and it's made public, it blindsides the world. Yeah. Nobody saw this coming, especially the Soviets. And now the Soviets are worried about this new partnership. And that helps Nixon lead them to this uh, kind of like basically what people w would kind of deride as a containment strategy. But it leads to the first, you know, nuke reduction treaties, anti-ballistic missile treaties. All, all, all that was happening under Nixon, mainly because he opened up shit with China and China and, and Russia weren't getting along. Right. So they were like, oh, we're going to we're going to lose to this new partnership of two mega powers. So it was brilliant. Like Nixon was really like on point with international stuff. Yeah. You know, like it was really a, like a, a gift to him that had come from all of his previous experience. But at home, there was like, you know, really not too much to talk about. Like it was mainly him, you know, campaigning and, and kind of sewing up divisiveness, but then, you know, not doing anything that was like super spectacular on a domestic front. He was really doing so much internationally. And part of that is, you know, his, like I told you about, he got, you know, protested in Latin America when he toured through there. When uh, Allende was in Chile, Nixon was like, I don't like this fucking socialist guy at all. This guy's a fucking communist. This guy's got to go. And they were big supporters of Pinochet. Oof. And uh, Pinochet was totally in love with uh, Milton Friedman and the Chicago School of Free Market Economics uh -huh. and all those guys. You know, Reagan was rocking, walking around with Milton Friedman's book under his arm when he was campaigning years later. And... Uh, so like, and now also to 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 speak about George H. W. Bush, when George H. W. Bush was overseeing, you know, the fall of communism, Nixon's now in retirement, right? And he's like, George H. W. Bush is way too weak on this. Like, you got to get in there. Like, you gotta, you gotta not just like watch it dissolve and see what happens. You gotta decide what's gonna be. And right. like, he kind of a gap. Yeah, and he kind of like makes his point known to the Bush administration. And then they started doing shit, and they started getting involved in horrible ways, <laughs> which was installing more free market bullshit, yeah. which ultimately ended up fucking up Russia really bad. Oh, you just like eight guys took over the entire economy? Yeah. Right, which then led to Vladimir Putin. Like, it's a direct line. Like, everything Nixon does is really a direct line to everything that is going on in the world today, especially yeah. on the Republican side of politics. Yeah. You know? Um, the silent majority. I mean, you know, Roger Stone, who was the first person that ran Trump in 88, was like a 20-something-year-old in the Nixon administration, has a tattoo of Richard Nixon between his shoulder blades yeah. on his back. Yeah. Immaculately illustrated. It's like a Steve-O, but Oh, it's yeah, Nixon. it's a beautiful Nixon portrait. It's absolutely gorgeous. And the whole thing was, was, you know, it was like when Nixon had to resign over Watergate, he knew it was for the good of the country. But all of his progeny, you know, the Cheneys and the Rumsfelds and the Roger Stones and George H.W. Bush and everybody else that came after were basically kind of told or taught by the Nixon administration, we're doing it for the right reasons, so anything goes. Right. You know? Like, before Watergate happened, Nixon was... was uh, was telling, like, Haldeman and all those same guys a year before to break into the Brookings Institute to get dirt on LBJ, you know, to, to like, you know, blackmail him with. Oh, shit. So it was created, like, a total culture of uh, of, of corruption. But meanwhile, like, LBJ had had shit on Nixon and never, right. never used it. Yeah. Like the Vietnam uh, phone call. 
Right. Do you want to? Do you want to? Because you you've talked to me a lot about this. And... But Aaron, you're familiar with the so like it. LB, Nixon, the Nixon campaign in '68. They have a secret phone call with the head of the North Vietnamese. Yes. Right after LBJ has has made a, a, a tentative treaty with them. And, and there's, there's a, a chance th- to end the war. There's a chance they're going to go to Paris to right. meet to end the war. And then Magneto came <laughs> in that famous documentary. Well, this is through, uh, like a, uh, I believe, a Chinese emissary, Anna Cheneau, mm-hmm. was kind of Nixon's uh, direct line okay. to the North Vietnamese. And it's in the it's in the Ken Burns Vietnam documentary. And he so he has the, he has a, a chance to to end the war, but but Nixon intervenes because he knows if the war ends, he can't run on ending the war. Right. So he intervenes and he talks to the North Vietnamese, and they either they don't show up to the treaty or they go to the treaty talks and they just don't do anything. Right. And LBJ uh, has his intelligence, and I believe it's this, I believe the CIA was a. If it wasn't the CIA, called the CIA, it was still around then, and they have a recording. It was the CIA. They were tapping the phones of the North Vietnamese, (laughs) and they know... I know this voice! They know Nixon. And so LBJ, and and Ken Burns has the audio, he plays the audio, LBJ calls Nixon. And he goes, uh, no, Dick, uh, no, uh, I don't know if you heard about this, but, uh, you know, when they kind of pulled out of the treaty and, uh, oh, yeah, that's terrible, that's terrible. No, 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 Dick, you wouldn't have anything. No, 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 I wouldn't. No, I didn't know. Oh, no, no. And LBJ has the goods and he yeah. knows. And he goes, all right, Dick, okay, then that's, that's what I thought. Okay. Jesus. Yeah, he totally cucks him. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember hearing the audio in, I think it is what I... I think I saw it in the Kennedy. And Nick's like, no, 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 I would, no, I would uh, never, no, 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 I would never. I like me. And that's a thing that, uh, an act that the Reagan administration would then pull. Right, right, with the hostages. With the hostages yeah. in Iran. Yeah, and it's the exact kind of thing that, um, you know, Nixon would have been against at the time that he lost to JFK. You know, mm-hmm. now he just sees like this avenue for power, and he's basically willing to to promise the, the North Vietnamese that they can get a better deal if Nixon's president. So hold out on this shit with LBJ. You know, my countrymen. Yeah. So I, it's 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 we've got tons of nineteen year old Mexicans and black kids to send over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's it's really it's really, it's just so telling of how bad he wanted power. You know. Um, but I, I feel like he always felt like he had to have these fights and um, and and win them, you know. But like he was always better as the underdog, as the fighter. Because then once he attains power, he completely unravels. Right. And he just perceives everybody else as as uh, as another struggle, as a, like another you know enemy. Every everybody's the enemy. Now you're at the top. He's seeing right? Nixon's everywhere. Yeah, yeah, you you know, he says um, in 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 the Frost uh, interviews, he's like, um, he's like, you know, they they stuck the sword in and they they twisted it with relish, you know, when they saw me going down over Watergate, and if I had been in their position, I probably would have done the same, and it's like, well, what the fuck does that say about you, yeah. man? Yeah, because it wasn't. Re- I don't. Th- it was for some people's relish, but for most people, it was. It was a sad indictment. Yeah, and yeah. Like, they were like, "We have to do this. We wish we did, we wish the president did us put us in, put us in this position where we had to do this." Yeah, it was. I mean, it was this very like shocking thing of telling the American people that no matter who you elect, they're all they're all scumbags that are that are bloodthirsty, horrible people that are just trying to tear somebody down rather than build the country up. It was right. an absolutely horrible message 
which uh, resonates to this day. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and and I think that there's like you know this this it, it starts with his belief of um, you know like I said uh, believing that this this old white man way of doing things is the best way to do things and not really getting to know your country that is now a multicultural country and just thinking that uh, you know they're all kind of uh, all these minorities are kind of like you know cattle or whatever you know to be to be shepherded to their right stall right you how know? can we use them for their votes. Yeah. What, what do we have to tell them to get their votes? Yeah, and, and you know, then... he's at this, you know, time of, like, massive national upheaval and, and disillusionment with uh, kind of everybody waking up to the idea that the America they were told uh, existed is kind of a lie, you know, which has kind of started with Korea, and now it's, you know, made its way much more public with Vietnam. And, you know, we don't have all that great, you know, we beat the fucking Kaiser, we beat Hitler, shit to pat ourselves on the back about. We see that we're... We, we, we lost to a bunch of Chinamen in, in tunnels. <laughs> right. Is what he would say. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's like, you know, but that that thing with all of his offspring, you know, from that, that go through, you know, all the revolving door of Republican elections, it's like Rumsfeld and Cheney mm-hmm. pop up again. All the way until George W. Bush. They go in... Reagan, they go in again, George H.W., you know, and they go in again, you know, gangbusters when it's time for George W. Bush. Oh, man. And then they have that thing where it's just like, yeah, if we do it, it's not wrong. Like, Dick Nixon showed us the way. Like, he was a great guy. You know, he did really good things. And, you know, fuck him. If we can get away with it, we'll do it. That was the school you were taught. Jeez. You know? It's like, you know, when Chris Christie was, was, you know, caught for the whole, the bridge scandal and stuff like that, he had to admit, I've obviously, you know, foistered this atmosphere of do whatever it takes to win and also destroy our enemies, you know? Like, Nixon in the White House, you know, did have a thing where he would, he would pick out specific journalists and be like, I want you to go through all the microfilm of everything that guy's ever written about me going back to the 50s while he was president. And uh, and write down the first letter of each each line on the left, the left margin. <laughs> right. But you know, like there was there was a a, a get 'em list, like uh-huh. a destroy 'em list, like uh, putting Secret Service people on Ted Kennedy, right? Who he called a fat Catholic jackass on tape, <laughs> uh-huh. which is very funny. <laughs> it is very very funny. <laughs> who can't drink? Yes, who can't drink? Otherwise, he gets mean. Um, but uh, you know, there's a. Uh, you know, there's the, the the post-presidency, too, you know, he, like, um, I'm really fascinated. He becomes kind of like a, this armchair historian, and he uh, he talks a little bit. Would you mind playing that clip about the, the, the where he starts with the, the Kennedys? And um, it's, it's very fascinating for me to hear his take on uh, previous and current uh, Democratic politicians uh, from the position of a man that, lost the presidency in disgrace. Yeah, because at this point, what does he have to lose? Looking at the Kennedys, I'd make an interesting comparison. First, Edward Kennedy was the best politician of the three. He is the best politician. He's gregarious. He loves it. He's warm. Uh, John Kennedy, on the other hand, uh, was quite a shy person, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was not easy for him to get out and shake hands and the rest. He did it very well. It wasn't easy for him. He was a quite private person. Uh, I would say that Bobby Kennedy, on the other hand, 
Well, I, I would compare him as Alice Longworth used to. As he, he was like a 17th century Jesuit priest, uh -huh. passionate, uh, uh -huh. uh, one of, uh, who brooked no opposition and so forth, very intelligent and so forth. Very, very interesting. Yeah. You know, he's taken the Kennedys, you know, uh, and Ted Kennedy was, of course, uh, an obvious enemy, and surely RFK, when he was alive, after, uh, you know, uh, JFK had died, was obviously somebody that he thought was gunning for him for mm -hmm. the 68 election. Um, he's he's still very flattering and, and kind of... Uh, well, it's always... I, these type of people always speak positively about their enemies after they're dead. <laughs> right, after they've But Ted Kennedy them. is not. No, 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 but he's a fat Catholic jackass. Right. But, you know, Bobby's dead at this point. Jack's dead at this point. So, yeah, for, yeah there's no... there's no. But it's easy for him to see, I think, especially that, that Teddy is definitely coming from. I think. You know, because they say, you know, these two friends, JFK and Richard Nixon, that come up together, uh, you know, he, he you know... He grows up the poor guy, and JFK is raised the rich kid, and then he suffers this defeat to JFK, and uh, and then JFK is killed, and so JFK is immediately like the martyred king, and then Nixon is forever cast as the Dark Knight, you know, and it's like, and that's kind of the way it goes, uh -huh. you know, like Nixon gets by thereafter on like public sympathy of like people, people being like, oh, you're too mean to him and stuff like that, and then he's like. Also, like, you know, doing whatever he thinks it takes to get the job done. Right, because he's not the president we need, but he's a president we deserve. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Very good, Joe. Which would make yeah. uh, Gerald Ford... Two-Face. <laughs> Gerald Ford. Dead today. But, so once he's in power, you know, like, you have, you have all this, this darkness descends, right? Like, the struggle is over, you know, and now everybody's the enemy. And so that's mm. the main thing I've been searching for and trying to find out about who this man is and why he did these insane things. Like, who is this man that came up with an enemies list? Who is this man that, that told all of his subordinates that no matter what, we have to destroy these people, otherwise they'll destroy us and our way of life and America? Huh. You know? Like, what the fuck happened? Right, what happened between Whittier... And the White House. He, he couldn't right. just cuck his way through that list <laughs> right. like he had in the past. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> he he basically he basically started they think going down in like 1970, right? Two years into uh, or, or or just a little bit over a year into his administration is when he started going down the left hand path. He. <laughs> He he's seeing all all the the flag draped coffins are still coming home, you know. Right. He's still caught in that. Now he doesn't want to be the guy that There's loses. There's heroin in those coffins, by the way. <laughs> right. Yeah, I saw the movie. Yeah. <laughs> he did, and, and like he's going through the same exact things that I've seen in 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 uh, in LBJ things, where he's just like, as soon as I do this, Ho Chi Minh is gonna shove a thousand fucking troops up my ass, and you know, like he's just like, I don't I don't want to lose. And then the you know he gets more and more involved. And eventually, it's his diplomacy with China and Russia that helps him disengage from Vietnam because it seems like he's going straight to the source of communism. Yes, and, domino theory, going to the first domino. Right, and uh, you know, but before that, he also employed what, what I think is one of the most insane things ever, which is uh, 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 the madman theory, which was him propagating the idea to the South Vietnamese and and various other people that would get word back to the communists 
that uh, he was so um, beside himself over uh, Cambodia joining North Vietnam Vietnam in the struggle that he might be crazy enough to nuke them. Right. And uh, he told his chief of staff, Haldeman, he was like, I, I call it Bob, I call it the madman theory. And I just want these people to think I'm so at the end of my rope that I would just do anything to stop communism. And of course it was an extremely da- dangerous thing that he should never have done. You know, but the generals were telling him to as well. Right. But this is part of the thing. Nixon, I think, was kind of a maniac for risk in like a gambler way. Um, He would create all of these these uh, problems for himself to kind of like, you know, throw shit up in the air because he was hooked on like, you know, it being a victory or a massive loss, which is why he keeps facing these massive self-created crises throughout his entire life and then crawling back from them and then gambling again and destroying himself again and again but for three days unbeknownst to the american public he was running border raids on the on the soviet union no shit acting like he was ready to 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 nuke at any time yeah in 1969 when you say border raids you mean like the border of the soviet union like boots on the ground or no no no, air raids air raids yeah yeah, Just and it was, so, and that was something that was later t- taken by Trump. Trump was a big fan yep. of that theory in, oh, yeah. in his approach to the North Koreans. But again, it's got the same thing of like, you don't know how it's going to end. You have no right. idea. It's a high risk, high reward maneuver, right? Of the highest risk. Yes, yes. For a minimum, a moderate reward. Yeah. Otherwise, we'll just keep doing the same thing we've been doing. Right. But in the meantime, we might get a complete. Collapse of comedy. Did he think that was going to happen? You know? Who, Nixon? Yeah. Like, what did he think was going to happen? Like, they would just fork over all the nukes to us? Like, what? No, I mean, we already signed that treaty with them, and uh, other countries were wanting to build nukes, too. And, uh, yeah, there wasn't, there was not, it was, it was just an idea. And, and that was an idea for him, but also it's like, you can't be an underdog unless you keep throwing yourself in impossible situations and losing. Right. Yeah. And Some then, people like to be a loser. It's a comfort zone for them, or, or, not just not just a loser, but some people also thrive in panic situations. You know, you ever, yeah. you ever meet those people that they they seem at home when everything's going to shit. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. for sure. That's almost, their calmest. They they do better yeah. when yeah. everything's crazy around them. Yeah, yeah, that's very much him. But it's like uh, he's also along the way, you know, building more and more grudges and more names. You know that he doesn't want. Like when he goes to China. And it's a big, you know, kind of public relations, you know, uh, victory for him. He's just bringing, like, uh, television journalists because it's also a way at uh, getting back at all the print journalists he hate that have talked all this <laughs> shit about him, which is very Trumpy, of course. Yeah. Um, he has this huge problem with the press in general, you know, when he's, when he's falling apart. He says at one point, we can have peace, we can have prosperity, we can have all the blacks screwing the whites <laughs> and still not get credit from the liberal establishment. All the black because that's all we want. That's all we want is all the blacks screwing the whites. Yep. I mean, I, I'm okay with that. That's a positive step. Blacks.com. Yeah. <laughs> Probably a throwback to, to Pat's dating days. <laughs> I'm going to be getting cucked by the whole UCLA defensive line. And so he would, he would go around, you know, uh, you know, caught on the taping system he installed in a paranoid Fuhrer in the White House, uh, muttering. Paranoid uh, Fuhrer. That should be his name. <laughs> yeah. The, he would say the press is the enemy. Uh. 
Trump again. Yeah. Just be saying the press is the enemy. Um, and he, he would just kind of do these things where he was kind of like talking to himself, you know, like there was there was very, very dark times like uh, Gerald Ford, you know, it was VP it would be like he said, this is a man that had serious demons. You know, he would just keep creating these these crises from for himself, totally self-destructing all the time, making it worse and worse. And it seemed like he always wanted to burn it all down so we could start again. Rip it up and start again, dude. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's what, 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 you know, leads him to to Watergate and trying to cover it up. Yeah. And uh, eventually, you know, um, my favorite thing about, uh, you know, the thing was the, the Saturday Night Massacre where he fired the attorney general and the deputy attorney general um, about the tapes. Yeah. Uh, when they first went after the tapes to find out about the Watergate stuff, um, they were like, okay, we'll give over the tapes, but only this senator, this specific senator, can be the one to review them. And it was a guy that had a famous hearing problem. <laughs> <laughs> and the tapes were, like, redacted, too. They had bunch well, of, yeah, yeah. Like, the the secretary was... actually left her foot on and erased. Yeah, the... but, I mean, what... what... <laughs> What a gimmick to try to get over on people. Yeah. Like, uh, we'll let you have them now, but it, but, can, only, it can only go to Dave. But that's uh, Dave from the, uh, the Civil War. <laughs> what? Uh, he's got a big ear, ear horns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, just completely pathetic shit, you know. Um, and, you know, his guys, Ehrlichman and Haldeman, all the guys with all the Nazi-sounding names, they all had to go down. And Nixon, <laughs> Nixon he would be very he'd be very emotional about it, you know, because, uh, you I know. I sure he, love those Nazi guys. Uh, these guys, you know. Good, he just good, felt so, like. Good guys on both sides. Good soldiers, good soldiers. But he had that idea that, you know, Dick Cheney um, has about Scooter Libby when Scooter Libby is not getting the pardon from Bush. And Cheney, again, coming from the Nixon establishment, Scooter Libby is the one that outed the CIA agent, Valerie Plame, yep. while she was an active CIA agent, yeah. could have killed her. <laughs> because they didn't like an editorial her husband, husband wrote. Yeah. And so Scooter Libby... Hello. <laughs> yeah. That's just one thing from that administration. Yeah. That's just, just one. That's just, just one. one small... And it is treasonous. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I hate spooks. Right. Hate, I hate the CIA. I've always said that about you. Hate spies. Yeah. Also, love spies, love the CIA. I haven't made up my mind. Who's to say? Who's to who's say? To They've say. done horrible things in South America, but also, I love spy movies. Mm. Right. But that's just one thing. A treasonous outing of a covert operative. That's one page of the book. Yeah. <laughs> Decision point, number one. But also, I, I was kind of baffled at the time. I'm like, how is that going to discredit this guy? His wife is a CIA agent? Oh, what, does he have like a better grasp on what's yeah, going on? exactly. Like, what are you talking about? Oh, no, it was just to inflict pain. It, yeah. wasn't it, was, to make it a... was purely vindictive. Yeah. Yeah, so... Not strategic. Right, exactly. And that was the kind of thing that was, that was born out of the Nixon administration, was just getting back at, you know, who fucks you over, and also... So anybody that stands by you, you need to lay your life on the line for. So when Cheney was going to George W. Bush at the end of his administration saying, you need to pardon my chief of staff, Scooter Libby. And George W. Bush was like, no, I'm not going to do that. Cheney turned on George W. Bush for the first time ever, people say. Mm -hmm. And he was like, um, his his words were, you're leaving a good man on the field of battle. (laughs) And that is definitely... A mindset that was born about by all the people that were willing to do dirt in the Nixon administration. Uh-huh. That is totally where that came from, you know. And 
it it's like this that's just one of the things that you know you see like Nixon's shadow cast over um and and it also you know Nixon like I said he was he wanted to play all free market games in South America and he wanted us to play free market games in Russia and then that was pushed even further by Reagan and all of you know his his people and George W Bush everybody was like we're going to open a Starbucks in Kabul or whatever, everybody's yeah. going to be so psyched for these American jobs. Yeah, They're going to be so psyched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dude, but, you hear? Yeah, but I really think that Nixon actually believed that was the the the, uh, the solution to, to people's problems worldwide. Whereas I think later on it became people being like, how can our people make money in these places right. that we and consider shitholes? I think that makes all the difference. Right, yeah. I do think Nixon actually believed um, that he was the Dark Knight in the, in the way of like, I'm... I'm not as popular or as hip as those guys with those haircuts, but uh, by God, I know what's best for people. You know what I mean? Yeah. I really believe he, he, he thinks that. And I think every Republican has thought that since. Like, we're the lame ones, but we are, we're actually the ones that you want controlling things. Huh. I think that's really been the platform of, of every Republican since. Like, oh, yeah, we're not as cool and accessible as It may the... be their platform, but... I think they believe it. Some of them. I do. I really do. I think I think they believe it. I mean, now it's taking a bit of a different yeah. turn. You want to talk about this administration? <laughs> well, well, I mean, this this administration shares so many similarities with the Nixon administration, um, except for in in the way of I think Nixon would be very against Trump's isolationism. Right. That's a thing that Nixon actually turned the Republican Party away from, yeah. and to trying to be you know, like I said, like most of his administration's accomplishments are international ones. Mm-hmm. Trump has no interest in that. I think Nixon would be totally not on board with that at all. Right. You know. Um, also, I don't think that Donald Trump would ever give up the presidency for the good of the country. Right. Uh, Richard Nixon would. Yes. Or Richard Nixon wouldn't contest a tight election for the good of the country. Right. Donald Trump absolutely would. He will, he'll contest anything he loses. He'll contest, he'll contest things he won. Yes. Yeah. I mean, so I think... I he'll think... contest documented <laughs> pictures and fact. Yeah. I, th- I think that, you know, he, he really you know, believed in these things. He just also was a, a, a really fucked up person. Um, people close to him, you know, were never that close to him. And and people that were friends his whole life sometimes wouldn't even call him by his first name. Uh, like, he, he... Yeah, he would really... Uh, call him Millhouse? <laughs> Tricky Dick? <laughs> Tricky Dick. I mean, well, I don't know what. Like, I mean, like... I have no idea. What would they call him? Mr. President? Or... Yeah. I have no idea. Well, believe me, if I was president, I'd make you fuckers call me Mr. President. <laughs> yeah, 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 I can see that. And at the end of his life, you know, he was interviewed and he was he like he was asked, you know, a lot of, of Americans feel like they, they still don't know you after you've had this long public life. And he was like, I say that's true. And and they don't need to know. You know, he was just like I've got a lot of secrets. Uh, he's just a super private guy, but like he was like a lot of people think undone by his willingness to be open with other people and also to open himself up to greatness like he uh-huh. he wasn't really willing to 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 push like something like lbj would do with the greater society or fdr would do with the new deal right. it was always just about i need to keep uh i need to hold on to what's mine and not lose you huh. know what i'm saying that's poor kid mentality yeah 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 it was very short and it's short-sighted too yeah it is because if you if you wanted to stay in power well empower Other the masses person. yeah whether that's through the economy or rights or, or whatnot, you know. Yeah. Roger Ailes uh, was um, kind of his uh, his television advisor. 
of Fox. Then. Yes, Roger Ailes, yes. Of Fox News. Yeah, he, he's he started with Nixon, and he said he Great. said he said about Nixon he had no <laughs> yeah. personal ability to get control. He was to live in a drama in a western, Nixon against the world. Uh, somebody else said he needed to tempt self-destruction. He courted controversy intentionally. The thrill was in those few breathtaking moments when the dice were in the air. Yep. Makes perfect sense. I, it's like that thing they say about, like, you know, gamblers are actually addicted to losing. Yeah. You know? It's like, that's really where the payoff is because, you know... You have a whole reason to play again. Mm-hmm. Right. And And when you lose a lot, you get really good at starting over. Yeah. And then you kind of get addicted to beginning things again because that's what you're best at. Yeah. The uh when the uh, Apollo 13 crisis happened, he uh he was on the, he was you know basically ready for these astronauts to turn up dead and ready for it to be a huge crisis. And um when they got back, okay, they all had like a like a victory drink. And and by 3 p.m., Nixon was hammered and snoring. (laughs) I thought you were going to say snorting coke. (laughs) If only. If only. It's all chopped up. Paranoia then. Yeah, it was was just like one thing after another is all about him like being addicted to like adrenaline and and, uh, this fear of this vast fall for him or the country or both together. Yeah. You know? Remember, this is a guy who would wake up and go polish fucking rutabagas. Right. And then do all of his classwork. Yeah. Do all the extracurricular shit. Yeah. And then he's just got, like, you know, the the highest job in the country. And he's totally beside himself with insanity. Do you think, do you think he wasn't prepared for it? Is anybody? I mean, like, yeah... I don't know. I think I think it's interesting because of his of his post presidential remarks, which I'm which I'm so fascinated with about other presidents and uh, the wielding of power by by great people. He seems to always have had um, at least a you know kind of a like a a hold on it. Because he seems like he should be the most prepared. Vice president takes over when Eisenhower has a heart attack. Right, yeah. I mean, if he was running now, he would say he's the most prepared person for the job, like yeah. Joe Biden's saying right <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah, like he's saying. But he's, he, he actually had a far better, uh, you know, pedigree. Yeah. You know, like he was, he was, uh, he was the president when that guy's heart was fucking kicking yeah. out, you know? And, uh, but I think that he was better as a subordinate. Um, yeah. And he talks about that in in in, um, in the rest of that clip. We're um, we're gonna play. This is just a, a couple of things with with um, Nixon talking to Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan, uh, oh, the national treasure, the, the man who made George Wallace and now first, look exciting. For, uh, uh, this is Nixon off camera um, talking to to Buchanan about LBJ. I think um, maybe we can get through LBJ in that period. Oh yes, I can do that. Um, <laughs> Oh, yes. Okay. You know, there's this terrible book out on it. It's a terrible uh, book. Oh, I know it by uh, George Reedy. It. Did you read, is it Reedy's book? Robert Carroll. Oh, no, no, this new Carroll book. Yeah. Uh, it gets a rave review from uh, Clifton Fadiman in the book of the month. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Stand by. Shit, it makes him appear like a goddamn animal. Mm-hmm. Quiet. Of course he was. <laughs> <laughs> and when he says 
says, of course, he was. He's grinning ear to ear. Uh, <laughs> uh, do you have the part where he talks about abortion being okay in the case of blacks and whites? No, I don't know about that. Oh, yeah. That's in what the, his tapes, too. Like, oh, well, I'm, a, I'm against abortion. Uh of course, in uh, cases of uh, you know, incest or yeah. when a black makes it with a white. Right. Jesus, I was, I was a really big fan of, of finding that uh, the things on tape that he said that were like horribly racist. He's talking to Donald Rumsfeld. And Rumsfeld's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. And like he's just like going off the top of the dome like, well, you know, these, these are... Off top, yeah. <laughs> off top racism, huh? Yeah, <laughs> and Rumsfeld's like, yeah, fire. I know, yeah. Um, but then uh, I think I think in the next part he goes on to talk about um, <laughs> wielding power. <laughs> he was a man. Oh, that was LBJ was a man. Yeah. Which, of course, he was. There's no question in my mind that in this century, the three greatest politicians, active politicians, were Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin D. Roosevelt, and Lyndon Johnson. Nobody else of the presidents was in their league as political operators. Hmm. So now you got Theodore Roosevelt. Listen, I don't want a president uh, who's warm on the outside and warm on the inside too i want one that's warm on the outside but i want one who when the tough decisions are made is cold and tough and will make the right decision without uh, fear of failure i mean yeah i guess we all want that president eisenhower was loyal too uh, now this say uh, he uh, but but he believed you know he was a military man and he believed that people that are subordinates uh, carry out what the chief wants uh, I remember, I'll never forget uh, that perhaps the man that Eisenhower and many European uh, people that have talked to me believe was perhaps the greatest chief of staff in World War II was Beetle Smith, General mm -hmm. Beetle Smith. And Beetle Smith, this was afterwards, was a neighbor of mine in Spring Valley. He came in one day and, and we'd had a couple of drinks and mm -hmm. the tears were coming down. He was not well at the time. <laughs> he said, you know, I was just Ike's Pratt boy. Ike always had the Pratt boy. And he says, that's what you are. Well, it didn't bother me a bit. That was my job. Mm -hmm. A vice president, a member of the cabinet, a member of Congress who is a member of the president's party, he should always consider that he is dispensable and should do what the man wants uh, to carry out the policy. Because otherwise, the man's got to get down there in the ring. What happened to Richard Nixon when Eisenhower was president? Be bad for me. Uh, wouldn't matter that much, maybe, to the country. What happened to him could be disastrous. Huh. So I think that Nixon was actually kind of like checked in the VP role in a way that was perfect for him. You know, it was still, you know, uh, kind of like a, a, a bit of a battle and a struggle, but he wasn't the ultimate like responsible person. Right. You know what I mean? He had a North Star. Yeah. Like uh, him as the campaigner and, and uh, was was really his best thing when he was striving for something. But otherwise, I would say his his second best would be being somebody's second yeah you know like it was he he still he couldn't let it all fall down on him you know it, it was somebody else's thing but he could enthusiastically like implement you know eisenhower's agenda and probably take more risk yeah attack his enemies etc um but i think yeah i think he was a guy that was that was sort of more ready to take orders than give them yeah, yeah. He, he's too busy craving power to know how to use it. Right. If I've got it, what do I crave? Right. Right. Exactly. I'm like a 
I'm like a dog chasing a car. <laughs> right. I don't even know what I do when I get it. Yeah. I except totally now he, the line, he's, he's got the fucking car and all he's fucking doing is thinking, well. He's humping the gas tank. <laughs> now all I can do is, is fucking, you know, d- destroy uh, like my perceived enemies that I don't even really know if they are. Right. To the point that I got my guys breaking in and creating a catastrophe that's going to lead to my undoing. Right. Like the paranoia about the other being so pervasive that it totally drowns you. It's completely insane. It makes sense, though. Yeah. It, it's 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 crazy, but when you understand... when Not I'm saying that we do, but when one does understand the man or the psychology uh, that, that, that he has, it, it makes sense. Yeah, I think he just always kind of uh, was anticipating doom mm. in some way. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. But then, you know, he, he so he exits the presidency and, you know, um, that probably like that was probably after a month, a total relief for him. He probably felt amazing because once again, he gambled, he lost. I'm the underdog. And now he now he just has to build his legacy back up. Yeah. yeah interviews. Yeah. And that's what he does. And that's what he does in his post presidency thing. And, you know, he, he kind of. um he would still be treated like royalty by the Chinese. He was the one that started it. You know, uh, George H.W. Bush that uh, just passed away was um, was uh, lauded by the Chinese, too, um, because after the Tiananmen Square massacre, he still kind of sent private messages of being like, hey, we don't want to fuck up this relationship. Like, I condemn what you did, but also I don't care, <laughs> you know? Um there's a billion of you. Yeah, yeah. You're too important to lose as an ally. But the Chinese, you know, they, they didn't uh, forget that and in their response to President Bush's death. And they also, um, I mean, they when Nixon would come again and visit after the presidency, they would treat him like he was the president. Huh. Um, and so, you know, it took a little while, but people started seeking his advice. I mean, Hillary Clinton was on the staff of the campaign to impeach Nixon, and then years later... Clinton would be commonly seeking his advice while in the White House. Wait, Bill or Hill? Oh. Bill would commonly seek his advice in the White House. He became this elder statesman in the 90s, and, you know, uh, Newsweek ran a thing being like, he's back, you know? Like he, right, right. He kind of attained all this shit after, you know, he went broke and everything. Like, Congress had to, to decide how much it was to pay for his transition to civilianhood, and I think they gave him, like, 200 grand, and we're like, get the fuck out of here. No shit. He, did he not get some Secret Service detail for the rest of his life? No, he did. He did, but, I mean, as but far— But he didn't get a presidential pension or anything like that. I don't, I don't— uh, I don't know about that. He wasn't giving he, quarter million dollar speeches to Goldman Sachs. I mean, I know he had to go start <laughs> writing memoirs very fast, and and then also it led to the Frost Nixon interviews because he was getting six hundred grand oh, for those interviews in very, the seventies, or, or you know, so it was a ton of fucking money, you know. Beats uh-huh. uh, dusting off turnips. <laughs> so that was <laughs> or the thing, build, building houses, you know. And but he, you know, he got the the same kind of post presidential thing, doing speaking tours and stuff like that. So he kind of like made some money. Well, there's also something appealing from a media perspective about the disgraced president. Sure. In that, other than the the ratings or whatever, you know, <laughs> <laughs> other than the obvious. But like, all right, here's a guy who's got nothing to lose. Yeah. He can say whatever he wants. It's you know this right, is right. my uh, this is the uh, your uh, drug addict gay uncle. Yeah, let it, yeah, he just beef just spouts off. What are people gonna do? Yeah, yeah. And, and he must know if he says something bad about this person, he would know because yeah. he's a bad person. Exactly. And he's you know he's got like 
he's got he's like Charlie Sheen. Yeah, fucking smoke eight gram rocks at bang hookers, summer guys. I don't care. I got AIDS. Tiger blood. Fuck it. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. More. And, and like, I mean, think about think about all the the pageantry the Republican National Committee would be doing in the years afterward that he was still alive. Where it's like, do we bring him out? Do we trot out Tricky Dick? Uh, let's maybe not remind them of that. You know, like think about how often that would happen. Right. right? You know, where it's like, he's there, but you don't want to rem- be reminded of him at certain times. You know, uh, it it'd be very, very kind of demoralizing. Just to be like, oh yeah, I, I was vice president. I was president. Fucking end of the war in Vietnam. and opened up relations with China, and they don't want to act like I was a great Republican. That'd be fucking mind blowing. Yeah, you know. But uh, yeah, so he he leaves the he leaves the White House, and the the recorded uh, quote from his wife Pat was, um, she said something like, "I think I'm gonna helicopter out of there." Like. It's so sad. It's just so sad. You know? Probably wishes she was back in Whittier getting railed by all those black fellows. <laughs> I know I do. <laughs> but so, yeah, he, you know, he, he, he kind of, he goes out, you know, and he, you know, he does his thing. He's doing his, his, uh... <laughs> He um he gets pardoned by Ford. Of course. And they know they say you know it definitely cost Ford the election thereafter. It was like the main right, thing right. and uh Ted Kennedy was uh you know uh, fucking drunk rapidly against it. Uh-huh. But in in later years he was like uh Ford did the right thing for the country. He 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 was like he was like it was the right thing to do. Yeah, we tend to say that a lot. I, I feel like I don't. know. <laughs> when when is the one time where we get to go? That was the wrong decision for the country. I know, um, and I don't. I don't know. Well, I don't know. I mean, like, should Lincoln have let the South secede? No, no. But maybe. <laughs> no, he did the right thing for the country. He actually. Yeah, oh, he did. But did see, he? that's different than acquiescing. He fought. For the country, as no, opposed to acquiescing. I understand, right. but perhaps there is something. Maybe, maybe, and this is playing devil's advocate. Maybe you cannot. Maybe you have to preserve the um, public's faith in their institutions, even when the <laughs> institutions don't deserve it. Yeah, but but we ha- we didn't immediately after that. It Reagan came in. And flipped that on its head and completely took away the idea of the institution being good. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> government is the solution yeah. to the problem. The, it the, is the problem. The scariest thing is when the government says, I'm here to help, which is an huh? insane thought. By the way, I'm here to help. What? Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and so we, that happens. Oh, it's for the best of the country. Maybe if you prosecuted the president for illegal activity, you right. wouldn't, have, you wouldn't would, have Iran-Contra. Yeah. Yep. That's the, that's the thing. Is that the escalation? You'd be like, look what happened to Tricky Dick. Yeah, he fucking goes away. Do you want that to happen he, to you? He gets a house in fucking right. California. He writes his memoirs. He's a millionaire. Right. And now everybody respects him. George H. W. Bush lies his way into the Gulf War. What does his son do? Same thing. Right. It does. Yeah. It, per, it does perpetuate. Well, it's a free pass. Yeah. No matter what you do, you can get away with it. Yeah. I agree with you, but I just wanted to make a bad point. You suck. <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm I mean, trying to see things from multiple perspectives right, here. Give right. people the benefit of the doubt, even though I know. Well, I mean, I, I mean, I'm interested. I'm interested in, in it from from the perspective of T- Ted Kennedy, who, who who you know would be around for all that shit, and you know, obviously a Washington insider, and probably knowing, you know, his name was on the list of people to get whatever that means, you know, destroy. And he's a his head's a big target. Yeah, yeah big fat head. So well, just, for for him to turn around, <laughs> knowing he was on the list of people to destroy, and him saying it still was the right thing to do for the country. I guess I wish I, I heard more of his reasoning why. Right. You know, um, it's always some emotional thing. Do you uh, think? Yeah, it, it, it's always an emotional thing. I don't want to be too hard on them. Like, there's like, oh, uh, Obama not prosecuting people from the Bush administration. Right. Oh, because it's for the best of our country. Well, it turn, turns out it wasn't. Right. Turns yeah. out prosecuting them would have. You right. have to set the tone. You have to say, we don't torture, so I'm going to prosecute the people who torture. Yeah. Right. Well, you know what? It, it, I think it's they're in like like Carlin said. It's one big club, and you're not yeah. in it. And as soon as you get in it, yeah. What are you gonna do? You're gonna yeah. Fucking start. I gotta fuck the club up. You're gonna bust out a knife in the club. <laughs> you're in the you're in the nice club, right? You don't want to start stabbing people at the country club. You're in the country club. Yeah, but I, I I think I think Ted Kennedy was in it long enough to have some kind of perspective, or was he in it too long? Yeah, they killed his fucking brothers. <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I think if anybody cousins. would have some some interesting perspective on it, it would be him. I think. Uh, and they shot down uh, JFK Jr. in that plane. They mm-hmm. shot the tire out from Kennedy, so he crashed on that bridge. Yeah, yeah that was tragic. It's all tragic. <laughs> um, so, I mean... Uh, <laughs> It's late. It's late here at the Profile Studio, <laughs> ladies and Nixon, gentlemen. Nixon is... Uh, it's 12.25 in the a.m. <laughs> he, uh, he loses his wife in 1993 of emphysema, lung cancer. Oh, did she smoke or did he? And uh, I don't think he smoked. I never saw him smoke. You couldn't hear it on the tapes. Asbestos. <laughs> yeah, um, he was sure. He was completely, that EPA completely distraught. Just totally destroyed. He was really, really in love with this woman. Yeah. Um, he uh he got a uh, he suffered a severe stroke on April eighteenth, nineteen ninety four, um while preparing to eat dinner. I think in I remember that New Jersey, um, and uh, his last words uh, word to his uh, housekeeper um, were help. <laughs> no, that's so Dixon. Uh, <laughs> help, <laughs> and presumably she helped him. Uh, well, she didn't. He died. <laughs> her, 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 the last words he heard was, no. <laughs> yeah, last heard words. Yeah. Is that a... His last words were help. The last words he heard was, was no. no. They said that after he died, um, in the New York Times, uh, he'd been equaled only by Franklin Roosevelt and being five times nominated on a major party ticket and quoting Nixon's 1962 for Will speech wrote, quote, Nixon's jowly beard shadowed face, the ski jump nose and the widow's peak, the arms upstretched in the V sign had been so often pictured and caricatured. His presence had become such a familiar one in the land. He had been so often in the heat of controversy that it was hard to realize the nation really would not have Nixon to kick around anymore. Huh. Do you have the Hunter S. Thompson obituary? Um, oh, he was a crook? He's <laughs> <laughs> headlined, he was a crook. Wonderful. Just eviscerating, devastating takedown of the man after his death uh, by Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson also uh, 
Oh man, I don't think it was about Nixon. I think it was about oh, it was probably about somebody else. But it was in Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, mm-hmm. and I think he talked about. I think that was seventy eight. 74 yeah, maybe it might have been somebody else but he was talking about yeah there are rumors that uh god it wasn't nixon but if somebody else there are rumors that he was doing a wow west african drug ibogaine it's oh that yes uh yeah, yeah well maybe yeah i oh, forget who the fuck that was about yeah yeah yeah, yeah it yeah. wasn't goldwater but he was saying like i've done yeah, that and he was like <laughs> <laughs> how do you? And somebody asks him, "How do you know the rumors?" He's like, "Because I started them." Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> on, on, and basically, uh, like as uh, as far as a, a legacy sort of thing, uh, George McGovern, uh, his one time opponent, uh, oh, I think it might have been McGovern, said in 1983, President Nixon probably had a more practical ap- approach to the two superpowers, China and the Soviet Union, than any other president since World War II. With the exception of his inexcusable continuation of the war in Vietnam, Nixon will really get high marks in history. I think for the China, the detente with China, mm-hmm. I, mean, I remember learning about that in, in high school and tr- somewhat understanding the, how big of a deal that was. Yeah, yeah. And we're only now kind of, we're going we're gonna to have to reckon with the superpower that China is in the near future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, I think he bought us some time. Uh, so I think you think that that is an accurate analysis of the work that he did, and probably opened up like American manufacturing to be shipped to China, but then right. for them to make a shit ton of goods that we now now purchase. But he knew that that it was going that way. Yeah, he's, he's like when he visited over there, he was just like, oh, this uh, they, is the future of manufacturing. Yeah, you're not going to stop it. All you can do is hopefully exploit it. Yeah, I just uh, I I I think I'm, I'm like I mean. He's a total scumbag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the jowled face and ski jump nose and widow's peak, whatever that. He uh, he's uh, he's uh, self-preserving. Um, he's racist. Um, he's corrupt. Uh, he's addicted to power. Um, cuck, right? <laughs> cuck. But I kind of like him in the way that I like Stannis. You know what I mean? That's perfect. Same <laughs> hair. He's like, he's like this. Stannis Baratheon from yeah, Game yeah, of Thrones. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's like this, this, this unlikable pain in the ass. But I'm doing willing it. to do anything, um, but uh, just thinking he's doing it for the right reasons. Right. Um, really, really, truly believing it, and uh, I just, uh, you know, um, I completely loathe what he's done to American politics in the country. I feel like he's destroyed it for generations. <sighs> Um, but I just think in, in this regards, you know, uh, George H.W. Bush too, you can still, uh, find some kind of likability and pity in a man that doesn't know what they're how, doing how, well. how stupid he is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and you also, when you consider the era and the environment that they were raised in or, or that they became men in. Well, I mean, just, just the Cold War over your shoulder. At yeah, all, exactly. is, is uh, with those guys like Bush one and mm-hmm. Nixon and even Cheney, you know, they really did have this deathly paralyzing fear of communism. Yeah, and there's a part of me that really, uh, aside from their power hungriness and manipulation and conniving, they really did feel like they were doing what was best for yeah 
The world needs bad men. Yeah. To keep other bad men from the door. Right. And I think, I think a lot of people, I think a lot of bad men in history are probably like that. Yeah. Well, they got the bad s- guys never think that they're the bad guys. Well, they got to sell themselves to themselves. Absolutely. Fucking assholes. No, you're right about that. Yeah. You're right about that. Yeah, but, I um I don't know. I've just, I've, I've I've been really obsessed with the guy. I think he's I think he's he's um he's cast the longest shadow um over his party's politics. Um even though but yeah, but the because think about it. Think but, about it. But his party has been in power since then. Like they've they've rigged the game and rewritten the rules and redrawn the maps that it really has had a, no consequence for them. They've been in power since then. Yeah. Right. Uh, ex, you know, save for a, a couple of sessions of Right. But but in in like in regards to the other party, it's not as if the you know the the shadow of JFK lingers over the Democratic Party. Like no, they, what they, shadow? No, there's no shadow on that. They got rid of it. They got well, what they, shadow. Well, they got rid of the old style of, of democratic politics. They they embraced all the 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 Republican style of politics well, under, they, under Clinton. They, they embraced corporate, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Got rid of whereas caring about the middle everything class. Everything Nixon started was pretty much kept in place, you know, because it worked. Yeah, and it was you know cynical and dark. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so there is no. What I'm getting at is that there is no shadow to be uh, cast over the party. I be, I believe that the, there should be, the, but there isn't. The corruption that started in the Nixon administration um, still it uh, permeates because of it. Yeah, well, some yeah, of it was but, the same people, <laughs> right? But at, to what end? I mean, like. It hasn't cost them anything. No, no, no yeah, no, exactly. No. But other I mean, than the, the opinion of bleeding heart, uh, what we, uh, hopeless libs, hopeless cuck libs. Maybe the best thing you can say is that from Nixon to Reagan to Bush one, Bush two, Nixon was the least bad. Yeah, you can wrap Trump in there. Yeah, I guess the Trump. Like all of these guys are fucking assholes, and most of them are war criminals. Yeah, well, I mean, Nixon would be with uh, with the bombings in Cambodia. In Cambodia. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I mean, it, I mean, it really well, all starts there. Well, it's like every president secret has been is, a war is, criminal. As, as in, in essence, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, but the the secret of nature, the nature of corruption, the nature of um, doing whatever it takes, uh, as long as you say it's for the right thing, then the nature of if we do it, it's not wrong because we have power. I believe that all really starts there. It doesn't start with Eisenhower. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It really starts with Nixon. Like this thing of like we know what we're doing, we know that it's not really legal, but we know that we can and should get away with it. Yeah, it's it's so rough because there is I think there is a case to be made for you know the lines between good and evil kind of blur after World War Two. Right. right. And yeah. and yeah. it's real easy to draw those lines in the sand prior to that. And there is also, you know, the argument of if if it's not us, it's some other guy, and you want do you want the other guy? Right. And uh, it's just not it's not an easy job. You should never want it to be. You should never want to be the president or the king or the the man in the high castle or whatever, right. yeah, whatever yeah, 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 it yeah. is. And it's an impossible job. But you know, oh God, I, I was there's I was listening to um, an interview with Mike Davis. He wrote City of Courts. And he he's a Marxist. He's an urban theorist. He's a critic, et cetera. But he he was uh, praising Obama for well, not praising, but he was he was saying I think Obama did the right thing 
uh, with the bailout to the banks and not bailing out Main Street. And I was like, what? This guy of all people saying that? And he was like, well, you got to look at it in the bigger picture here. <laughs> if you bail out the middle class, which is a check, most of that money is just going to go to China immediately. Huh? All of our goods come from there. It's just going to leave the country. Right. And I was like, holy shit, I never thought it. Like, you have to think about it two or three steps down the road, you know, like with Saudi Arabia and what's going on with Trump right now. They killed that journalist. The, F- Lindsey Graham said, there's not a smoking gun, there's a smoking saw. Right. Like, that's the indictment they just put on this fucking Saudi prince. But Trump is still not condemning it, right? Mm-hmm. Because we sell a lot of arms to Saudi Arabia. Right. right. That's, that's one thing. Sure. There's, that's one part of it. Well, why are we selling a bunch of arms to Saudi Arabia? Well, if we don't sell it to them, guess who is? Right. Someone else. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, but they they would still have to learn how to use them. And, and it's it, a big changeover, all... but in the in a lot these people are operating on time scales that we're not like sure, taking into sure. consideration. They'll still have to learn how to use them. Well, yeah, yeah well, well, you have to change. You got to change from like Linux to fucking Android or whatever. Like when, when you, you switch from American arms to Russian arms, then there's a ammunition right. change. And like everything changes. It, you're not. He's not, not being facetious. It is a big deal to change over like right. armament infrastructure. Yeah. Um, I just think it speaks to another thing about this administration where there's nobody really in, in control, so you can get away with whatever. Like all, that's all, part of yeah. it. That's, that's yeah. definitely You can part get of away it. with anything. Um, do I think it's a coincidence that under this president that Saudi Arabia is killing journalists and <laughs> the Russians are killing anybody they deem an enemy? The Chinese are disappearing people. Absolutely uh, actresses. not. Absolutely yeah. not. They know that nobody is driving in the car, and now is the time to tidy up business because yes, we because have an Yes, because this is the end of American empire. President. Chris Hedges called it. Like, it's happening in the next decade, yeah. two max. Yeah. Uh, well, part and part of it is because... And also, how are you going to get the next president to shore up respect again after that? You know what know. I mean? I don't know. Uh, is it... His name's gonna be Beto or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Beto yeah. or Bernie. Yeah. How about Alpha? You feel me? Alpha. Hey. Alpha. Alpo. Alpha. Alf. Alf. Yeah. Uh, we. Should, I would vote at this. Point, Our president needs cats. <laughs> <laughs> Well, gentlemen, that is the tale of Richard Milhouse Nixon. Yeah, it's very, very nice. Uh, Ski jump nose and bejoweled face. Yeah, brilliant. I tell you about the thing where he was being introduced to that that dinner when he was. <laughs> the guy goes, "You either like him or you don't." <laughs> <laughs> and Nixon cracked up. He thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Great. <laughs> that really sums it up. Yeah. You know, it's just uh, a guy with a, like a really uh, poignantly tragic self-destructive tale. Yeah. You know, um, pulls himself all the way up from the bootstraps and still a loser. Burns still it all losers. down. Still Some people are just losers. Nixon, loser. They love to lose. Yep. Yeah. Even when they win. Mm-hmm. Well, you can't lose without winning first. Okay. You got to have something to lose. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And what's bigger than losing? King of the world. <laughs> yeah. Saying goodnight to you, Aaron. Ah. That's bigger than that. Ah. Hey. You'll never lose me. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, everybody. My name is John Fahey. I'm Aaron Pita. Matt Brousseau. Good night, everybody.